African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. It's 1100 hours, Central African. Welcome to it. This is African Dialogue, and you tuned into Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa, bringing you news from an African perspective. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyane. Thanks for joining us on this uh, Tuesday, the 23rd of January. Thanks. Uh, let me thank our team, actually, before we get into our stuff. Uh, Tumelo Zulu and Ayanda Mkonazi, our producers, our executive producer, Brett Wilkinson, technical producer, Tumelo Mokwena. There's the breaking story here in South Africa that we absolutely cannot ignore, and we need to start with that before we get into the rest of our chat here on uh, Africa Dialogue, which is that uh, South African music legend, Huma Sekela, has died after a long battle with prostate cancer at the age of 78. Now, Channel Africa would like to extend its heartfelt condolences and regards to the family of the late legend Hugh Masegela. Of course, the entire arts and culture fraternity is mourning, not just in South Africa. We know that largely on the continent, he had a, a great reach and a great uh, uh, influence. Masegela will be remembered for his amazing songs. In his memory, we play right here on African Dialogue his uh, work entitled Ghana. On my way to Ghana, couldn't wait to dance the high life. Paris was becoming dull, there was no place to go dancing. Near the Ghana Airways counter, she was sitting in a corner, crying cause the immigration wouldn't let her go check in. Told them if they didn't put her in my custody right then. In my broken French, I said to them, Gonna be trouble at Charles de Gaulle. They don't care if you insult them as long as it's in France. Uh, may his soul rest in peace the uh, late music legend, Huma Sekela. We'll, we'll play that song towards the end again so you can hear more of it. Now, we talk the annual World Economic Forum, which is uh, a WEF, also known as a meeting of the rich and powerful, uh, which began uh, with a special message from Pope Francis being read out at the beginning ceremony, or opening ceremony, rather. WEF founder and executive chairman Klaus Schwab declared the summit open amid the ski resort receiving record snowfall. Schwab welcomed members from business, politics, academia, and media, as well as the first-timers with a round of applause. The theme this year is creating a shared future in a fractured world. To help unpack and discuss this, we're joined on the line by Davi Ruert, who's Chief Economist at Efficient Group. Let's welcome you, Davi. 
Good morning and thank you. Morning, thanks. And uh, Professor Patrick Bond joins us in studio, who's an economic analyst. Uh, welcome, Professor. Asanda, nice to be with you. And to uh, uh, Hugh Masekela. What a what of a course. loss today. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for opening with that music. Thank you. Annabelle Bishop also joins us via phone, uh, uh, telephonically. Chief Economist at Investec. Hi, Annabelle. Hi. Thank you very much. Thanks for making time to all of you. Let's start with you, uh, Davi, because I know we don't have you for that long. Uh, Let's unpack the theme of this year's meeting, creating a shared future in a fractured world. What does this tell us? Yeah, well, I think uh, important is to understand the context where all of this comes from and to understand where the world finds itself economically at the moment. And, uh, and I think uh, there are a number of uh, role players that are very important in, uh, in, uh, at the moment. One of those role players certainly will be Donald Trump, and Donald Trump will be discussing where he will have a speech at, uh, at Davos on Friday. And I think uh, that will, uh, a lot of people will come to listen to him, uh, and I guess for, for the, 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 not unnecessarily what he's going to say, but for some other values that, uh, that you quite often get from Trump's speeches. And I think that is part of the, the crux of this whole issue, because Donald Trump is not really seen as a, t- a team player. Donald Trump wants to get out of a number of international agreements, like, for example, NAFTA, like, for example, the, the climate agreements and so on. And he's certainly not seen as a team player, and I think that is part of the reason why we see this specific theme uh, for, for Davos this year. Additionally, what we have seen recently, and I think uh, Professor Bond will add to that quite a lot, is that uh, economic growth seems to be uh, going mostly, or the increase in wealth seems to be going mostly to the, to the really w- rich in the world. And quite ironically, it is the rich that will be gathering at uh, Davos, and I think that's also uh, the underlying topic of the specific uh, uh, discussions that will be held at, at Davos. Then, of course, a number of other issues. I think women issues are very important as well. And then some political issues. I'm referring to things like, for example, the crisis in, in Korea or the potential crisis there and some other geopolitical developments that we've seen recently. We'll talk about Donald Trump in just a few. But, I mean, uh, pointing on the fact of the, the theme and how the uh, world economic downturn that we've been facing, do you think, uh, Davi, that the meeting has a lot of ground to cover, also given the fact that there's an Oxfam report which touched on what you're talking about, about, you know, the richer yeah. getting richer. Oxfam giving us figures of four out of every five dollars of wealth generated in 2017, ending up in the pockets of the richest and the, the poorest half of humanity getting nothing. I mean, it's, it points to that fact then, really. I mean, it's not even an argument. The few at the top are getting richer and richer. So does this uh, World Economic uh, Gathering have more ground to cover than previously? Yeah, now let me just, uh, what you've just said, let me just uh, again uh, say something about that. Yes, that is indeed true. A lot of wealth that is created globally goes to the rich already, but it's untrue to say that the bottom half is getting nothing. In fact, we've never had it so good as humankind. We've never, had, uh, relatively speaking, we've never had so few poor people in the world that we have today. In fact, we've, had, we've made amazing progress the last couple of, the last hundred years in basically eradicating absolute poverty globally. Uh, less than 10% of the world's population today lives in absolute poverty, and it was more than 90% about 100 years or so ago. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't do more. Uh, I think certainly what we need to do, and I think that's part of the theme of this year's force, but it has been uh, a very important topic for some time, and that is to get so-called inclusive growth. Now, I personally believe that the best way to get inclusive growth is to get growth to start off with, 
And that usually, and I know Professor Bond is going to disagree with me, but it does trickle down and eventually the poor gets uplifted as well. But without a doubt, that certainly is a fact that the riches of the world are certainly getting richer, but the poor is also getting better off. Professor Bond, can you come into the, the, that point? And then we'll, I want to touch on Africa as well. If you can just uh, feed yeah. off what Davi is saying, whether you agree or disagree, and then we'll talk about what WEF actually means for the African continent. Well, yes, I, it's great to be with you, Sandra, the, and the listeners. The uh, dilemma for Africa is that we were hearing a great deal of uh, from the World Economic Forum, and indeed uh, the esteemed uh, economist Davi wrote that we should uh, open up and have export-led growth and let the commodities uh, drive Africa's re-entry into the world economy. Mm. Um, and so that was the basis for the so-called trickle-down theory. Eventually it will come down. It didn't work. And I think the legitimacy problem of the World Economic Forum and all those it represents is now uh, a big a big problem, especially because Donald Trump wanted to come and he'll delegitimize, I think, the global processes. As, as Davi points out, the Paris Climate Accord is is uh, in chaos. Uh, attempts at the World uh, Trade Organization last month in Argentina uh, to get uh, expanded trade fell. There's indeed a process of deglobalization, the rates of trade, rates of foreign direct investment. And these are the kinds of problems that are uh, not going to be solved by um, the World Economic Forum because the extreme uneven development, right, this mm. worsening inequality is really hardwired into the system. And this is a group of about 3,000 elites whose uh, function now is to re-legitimize. I'm sure your mm. listeners remember we, we hosted them in Durban uh, in uh, May uh, last year. They had the World Economic Forum Africa, as they will again this year. And there were protests and a lot of concern that all the rhetoric about inclusivity, especially making seven women the co-chairs in this very important year of Me Too, is simply a whitewash over uh, worsening inequality and indeed a building economic crisis with huge financial volatility, uh, flows of funds seeking rates of return around the world uh, that have made Africa a very dangerous place with debt crises, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, and now I think also uh, quite soon South Africa. Mm. In fact, that's one of the things that will be on the agenda, whether Cyril Ramaphosa meets the World Bank to um, smooth over some very rough relations with ESCOM and the potential recall mm. of a 45 billion rand, a, a $3.75 billion loan, the World Bank's biggest ever, for a coal-fired power plant with lots of corruption, climate change, and now an inability to pay. But certainly whether or not Africa does stand to gain from the World Economic Forum, I mean, the theme definitely speaks to a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the attitudes that are happening or the atmosphere that currently resides on the continent, creating a shared future in a fractured world. We know there are a lot of fractures on the continent, even within certain governments with pre-elections and, you know, all the, the unrest happening on the continent. So as much as maybe, you know, we could argue that Africa has nothing to gain, but this theme very much speaks to the continent, Professor. If, yes, if the commodity prices do ever really recover, I mean, they were up at uh, extremely high levels in 2008, they crashed, they came up again in 2011, and you might remember 2015, a, a massacre of especially the big international firms operating here. Lawnmen, for example, which more or less went bankrupt last month. They lost 99% of their share value in that year. And I don't think the World Economic Forum, aside from the Chinese, who have a Belt and Road Initiative and some potential driving of the commodity prices upward, mm. they have no answer, really. They, they suckered Africa into producing raw minerals and petroleum for the world market. The prices have crashed in half, by and large. They haven't really recovered very much. Mm. And uh, so we have huge debt crises and Africans uprising, as you say, against this Africa rising 
uh, myth. And I think the, the protests that we're seeing across the continent here in Johannesburg as just one example is an indication that uh, the World Economic Forum's legitimacy is in big question and not just the legitimacy of uh, this little group but uh, all of the ideology of free market world capitalism uh, that they represent. Uh, it's a 20 uh, minutes past uh, 11 here on African Dialogue. Uh, I know we have to let you go, Davi, but before we take a break, uh, yeah. I know you want to add to that. And I just wanted to touch also, yeah. uh, maybe because, Annabelle, we have you on for longer. I want to touch yeah. on the issue around women workers and what the Oxfam report is saying. But, Davi, go ahead. Yes, uh, just two issues that I want to uh, just to, uh, First of all, I think uh, it's important, before I go, just to make a comment about the South Africa delegation that's going to go to, uh, world, to the World Economic Forum. And maybe just a comment on what Professor Bond has just said. Remember, the World Economic Forum is a private sector initiative. It is not an official government-sponsored or government initiative like, for example, or a state or authority initiative like the, like the IMF or the World Bank. It's a private uh, organization. So people get together and they talk, and the idea is to get leaders of the world together to talk to each other, so, which I think is a good idea. Um, and secondly, I just want to make one or two comments about South Africa. We're sending the Deputy President um, to Davos. While we have some significant political issues in South Africa still outstanding, and some serious polit- uh, economic and financial issues outstanding, I'm referring, for example, to ESCOM. And we're sending a huge delegation. It costs a lot of money, mm. and I'm not sure. I'm very much in favor of the, of the deputy president going now. I think he, would have, he should have sorted out some political issues locally, and I don't think he really has a mandate because he's going as who? Is he, going, he can't go as the president of South Africa. He can't really have a plan because he's not the president yet. He may become the president, but I think there are more pressing issues locally, and I've got a question about the size of the delegation as well. Yeah, we know that there are very few African leaders there and and we need to be reading into this. But we need to take a break and we need to let you go, Davi. Thank you for the short time that you were with us. Thank you very much. 22 minutes uh, past uh, 11 here on African Dialogue. You tuned in to Channel Africa. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyane. We continue our chat about the World Economic Forum after this. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Welcome back. This is African Dialogue with me, Asanda Mazzaunyane, here on Channel Africa. Uh, we spoke to Davi Rudd, Chief Economist, Sufficient Group, earlier, uh, talking now to Professor Patrick Bond, Economic Analyst, as well as Annabelle Bishop, who's a Chief Economist at Investec. Let me start with you now after the break, Annabelle. Feeding off of what Davi touched on uh, slightly before we took the break, we know there's a few uh, African leaders that are currently attending the, the World Economic Forum meeting. How should one read into this? And then we'll talk about the, the, the women and, and the state thereof. Yes, I think the women issue is particularly important because the Oxfam report goes through how they are very severely affected and by poverty globally. I think just to quickly address your first issue on African leaders, you know, clearly the more people who can represent the plight of the poor and poverty, particularly in countries like Africa, you know, the better for this type of discussion. But I think, you know, as 
Darby said, the um, Davos meeting is organised by the private sector for the private sector. And from that perspective, you know, I think they will be discussing a lot of issues. Some of the key issues they brought to the table certainly were issues about global stability, such as cyber security, terrorism. Mm. You know, those are all quite important issues to discuss. But I think, you know, what is really quite overwhelming is this poverty issue. And, you know, when you actually go through the Oxfam report, look, certainly there have been criticisms of it, and, you know, one can't say the report in your report is always perfect. But if you have a look at the plight of women globally, you know, the, the plight of the poor, it's, it's really very serious and worrying because, you know, women largely are the carers of families and young children, in other words, of the future. You know, so if women are mostly in poverty, it means childhood poverty is something very serious to bear in mind as well. And, of course, as we know, children born into poverty often remain in poverty. Certainly when you look at other countries, you know, like the United States, and, of course, many of these leaders come from these advanced economies, you know, the issues are less perhaps serious there in terms of people can perhaps work themselves out of the system, but in countries like Africa, you know, certainly countries where poverty is very high, you know, those countries really have a situation where often people feel there's just no prospect and many times there isn't. So I think this report is very timely, but, you know, one wonders exactly how much it's going to achieve by bringing it to light at the time of Davos. And to add to that gloom picture on on women, uh, the the 2017 Forbes uh, Rich List named uh, five richest people on the planet as being all men. Now, the World Economic Forum is is estimating that it will take 217 years before women earn as much as men and, and, you know, have equal representation in the workplace. Is it going to take these many years, Annabelle, and why? I don't know. It's giving me cold shivers when you say that figure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because oh, it's shocking to me so as well. Serious? Yeah, I just got a cold shiver when you said it. You know, it's ridiculous, really. I mean, honestly, what you know more can men offer to the workplace than women can't? You know what I'm trying to say? Mm. So it's really a very, very strong form of inequality. It's very biased, and I think we understand the legacy issues. We understand where it comes from. We understand women are caregivers. We even understand many women don't want to be an active part of the workforce because they choose to dedicate themselves very admirably to their family and the children, the upbringing. But for those women who, equally important, do choose to be in the workforce, it does seem very irrational, you know, that that inequality should persist for so long and for so many years. I think partly it's a function of economies and certainly poor economies where there is no way out for women. But, you know, looking more at the Davos situation, looking at the top tier of Mm. the business world globally, you know, why are not more women not there and why, those are the questions that need to be asked, and why are not more women you know, making it to the top on the super rich list. And, you know, what really needs to change to enable women to be more successful? Certainly, you know, you all start somewhere. And looking at women in the workplace, could more be done to enable them during their childhood, childbearing years, looking after children, to enable them to get past that hump and to be able to continue to contribute and rise, you know, up in the corporates? That's certainly what a lot of people are saying. Bear in mind, however, that a lot of these DevOps leaders are basically entrepreneurs. You know, they've managed to get where they are by creating large companies. And again, it's because the wife's often taken, <laughs> taken care of the children, leaving them free to achieve greatness. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Zimbabwe, Professor. Oh, you want to touch on the women issue? Okay, let's start there. Everything, Annabelle, and you've just said. Look, can I add another good reason? Uh, we do have uh, one of the richest uh, uh, Africans, uh, Isabel dos Santos, as a woman, but she got that way uh, one of the, to be one of the richest through corruption. And I think that's the exception that proves the rule. The World Economic Forum is chock full of companies 
that are extremely corrupt. You know, we've had some victims uh, here in Johannesburg of these companies like McKinsey, KPMG, and South Africans took down Bell Pottinger. You know, Annabelle, I would love to see you the head of Investec Bank because I don't think it would be as, as corrupt as, as it is with the illicit financial flows. I looked at the names of the guys that have been implicated for doing naughty things in your bank, uh, uh, Annabelle, and they're all men. So can't you make one of the arguments that uh, women are less corrupt <laughs> than the men at the top of the World Economic Forum with the exception perhaps of Isabel uh, you know, Dos Santos. So let's talk Zimbabwe, uh, Professor. I want to start with you then. Emerson Nangangwa, uh, who's attending for the first time the, the, the meeting, what would your advice be to him, uh, you know, being the first timer in this gathering and also given the atmosphere in Zimbabwe where the, some see him as the saviour of the country, going to turn things around or just a continuation of uh, uh, the previous president, Robert Mugabe? Well, that's right. There are two major legitimacy problems for Emerson and Ngagwa, and they both date back a decade. You could go back, of course, to the Gukurundi massacres of perhaps 20,000 Ndebele people that that Emerson Mnagagwa has a great deal of blood on his fingers uh, in terms of uh, you know, implication, uh, being implicated there. Ten years ago, do you remember there was an election in which the opposition leader, Morgan Schwangerai, mm. now suffering late stage of cancer, very sadly, yeah. but he uh, was really the, the victor, and Emerson Mnagagwa was, was responsible for overturning that, and several hundred MDC, the, the opposition party members, were killed, so they kind of forced him out. And then also ten years ago, there was a massacre of uh, artisanal diamond miners in Morongi. That was where the $15 billion of diamonds uh, were uh, found, and, and only $2 billion, according to Mugabe, uh, came back into the into the fiscus. And again, Mnangagwa is the Secretary of Defense, as, as the Minister of Defense, and working with Anjin, a Chinese company, was responsible. These are the kinds of uh, legitimacy problems people are asking, with a huge foreign debt, over $10 billion, with no liquidity, right, cash, is limited in some of the banks to $5 withdrawal a day. It's a very tough job for oh. Emerson Ngagwa to say, that's not me. That guy 10 years ago who did these things uh, is uh, different and will now completely change and you can come and invest. I think people are very suspicious. What would your advice be to him and what he should work on while he's there? Well, a, f- a free uh, and fair election that uh, meets the standards of all opposition groups. There are four or five major parties now that are uh, getting together and not uh, the uh, hinted d- delay of the election. And probably a redistribution. You know, if Mnangagwa himself is implicated in that huge diamond outflow from the Morangi uh, area of Manika land, um, he probably has a great deal of the money that he's now saying, no, we all must bring it back. Well, he should be transparent and say, this is the money that I was responsible for uh, looting from the diamonds because he was the key key figure there. Hmm. And let's put it back and let's get the other elites in the ZANU-PF hierarchy to do the same. And I can bet you he will not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Annabelle, a professor touched a bit on ESCOM and what's going on there. And we saw, you know, a quick appointment of a new board in the South African energy giant. You know, and then also Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, the, the new president of the ANC, promising an overhaul of uh, SOEs, which are largely seen to be corrupt. How, how important was this, the ESCOM issue, as well as, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa promising an overhaul of SOEs uh, before attending the World Economic Forum and, and comparing it to now? 
I think it was critical, you know, I think it was absolutely critical because you don't want to go there and people say, well, what are you doing about the elephants sitting in the room, you know, your ESCOM or SAEs that are struggling because these are the issues that are identified by the credit rating agencies. Mm. You know, South Africa, as you know, is facing this potential big downgrade. Our last investment grade rating from the three key investment um, age, uh, from the three, three key credit rating agencies obviously is the one that Moody's gives us and we're facing this potential downgrade after the budget and why I say it's potential downgrade because they not only have us on a negative outlook with um, you know the rating being in the last year of investment grade rating which means that the next time you know they move it will be for a downgrade to sub investment grade but they also have us on a review which means they're actively working on this potential that they give us this downgrade so you know Avoiding that credit rating downgrade is really key. And the, the issues that they highlight, all the agencies highlight, because Moody's and Standard & Poor's have already put us on sub-investment grade because of these issues. They say that this, the governance of the state-owned entities needs to urgently be repaired. And, of course, that's what they're seeking to do now by reconstituting the board of ESCOM. You know, the other issues that the credit rating agencies raise, the fact that, you know, we have um, expenditure rapidly exceeding revenue. It hasn't been pulled back in. Eventually, you'd fall into a debt trap, particularly with our debt levels rising so substantially another issue they're worried about. So certainly, you know, some of the moves have been very positive and you've seen the NPA looking to freeze assets and quite substantial sums of money that they could flow back into the coffer of the fiscus. And I think, you know, if we get all the money back, you know, that, that, that's disappeared through corruption, if we manage to be successful in this endeavor, we could actually reduce the budget deficit so substantially that we don't need to increase borrowings and that could actually be very credit positive. We could actually avoid this credit rating downgrade from mm. Moody's, you know, which is tabled either straight after, it's tabled before the 23rd of March, but could happen straight after the budget, which is on the 21st of February, as we know. So these things are all vastly important, and the fact that, you know, they've managed to achieve so much in such a little time from a point of view of just talking about it and trying to change it around is very positive, but one mustn't forget that Sora Mopoza is the deputy president of South Africa. He's not the president, you know, yeah. and, you know, from that point of view, I think he could probably make even more sweeping changes, you know, should he come in early as the president of South Africa. So, you know, this is what people are sitting and waiting, and that's probably going to be a question that arises in Davos. You know, look, you've you've certainly made some inroads here, but you haven't solved the problems. You know, Eskom's still got these big debt issues to face. You know, certainly reconstituting the board might ease the lending. Uh, you know, certainly the banks froze funding to Eskom last year, and they obviously might start funding Eskom again. But, but obviously, you know, there's a risk Eskom can default on its World Bank debt. And, of course, then the JSC could suspend it on its suspend it as well from the point of view that it can't actually issue more bonds. And all of these are big factors to consider. You know, if ESCOM defaults, South Africa's government is guaranteed its debt, which means that we would have to make good on the payments, and yeah. we obviously can't afford that. It would push our debt levels up extraordinarily if we did have to increase the borrowings to fund it. And that, of course, then would see us multiple credit rating downgrades, and we'd fall into that single B category. And that would have very substantial impact on the business sector, on, on financial institutions, on the rated corporates in South Africa as well. It's 11.34 Central African time. This is uh, African Dialogue here on Channel Africa talking about the World Economic Forum. Professor, let's talk on Cyril Ramaphosa. Do you think that on the sidelines you could have those questions asked then um, about President Jacob Zuma's position currently on this, in the South African government and just how much impact uh, that will you know, have on potential investors? Well, certainly that is the central question politically in this country, isn't it, that uh, Jacob Zuma's passed his sell-by date. There's two centers of power, as it's called, the ANC, uh, which is now after last month's election led by Cyril Ramaphosa and Jacob Zuma. Now, there's been a drumbeat 
particularly from big business, get Zuma out as fast as possible. Um, and that we thought might even occur at uh, the two recent National Executive Committee meetings. However, it didn't. And I think there's a lesson there. Zuma survived. He even survived a no-confidence vote last August with much more support from that top layer in the ANC political elite than anybody had thought. And I think he might try to stay in power until September. That's probably the date uh, when the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa leaders, come to South Africa, come to Santon here to have their annual summit. And that's been his main legacy desire to say, I brought South Africa into the BRICS. In fact, he said I was poisoned. He said that on uh, three occasions, that he was poisoned by Western agents because this is such an important part of his political legacy. Which then brings us to exactly the point Sandabella is making. The, the, the business community, on the other hand, A, they want to get rid of him. They're, they're, they're shouting as loud as uh, I've ever heard, get rid of Jacob Zuma. And Cyril Ramaphosa is hearing that. And as you say, there are some of these um, efforts to undermine the Gupta family and their crony networks. However, I don't uh, agree with Annabella that this is going to boil down to how successfully um, uh, Sir persuades investors in Davos or in the international financial community to invest. And the reason is, I think we heard last year that once Moody's, uh, Standard and Poor's and Fitch give us junk ratings. Mm. Now, Moody's hasn't gone all the way. They've given us a partial junk. Uh, but when they give junk ratings below investment grade, everything will uh, you know, go down the toilet. And we were hearing, for example, that we'd lose uh, vast amounts of funds from in- institutional investors internationally, that our currency would crash. In fact, the opposites happen. And the reason for that is, and about, I hope you agree, this is a, a world in which we're awash with liquidity. In other words, the world financial system has way too much money. It's searching anywhere and everywhere. Mm. So we're paying about 9%, 9.5% on 10-year bonds. So that's the sort of quite high interest rate in the world market. Only Turkey pays higher than us amongst the majors. And I think those are the kinds of calculations that overwhelm the threat from Moody's that they'll junk us in March after Malusi Gagaba's budget speech, which, of course, has to find room for uh, fee-free education, about $12 billion. And then the big debate is whether there's going to be austerity. And I think, again, just on ESCOM, will ESCOM now get a chance to revise its tariffs because it is running out? It's got to pay a 20 billion rand um, in uh, interest this, this uh, month to the World Bank. And we saw them only get a 5.5% increase uh, in their latest uh, tariff increases. They wanted over 30. And so this is the kind of debate. Will the poorest of uh, South Africans have to pay? Uh, as opposed to, as Annabelle says, if they default, it would be the general fiscus. It would be the, the overall tax. And then I'd ask the final question. I hope Cyril asked it uh, this week in Davos. Hey, World Bank, we shouldn't pay you back. This was a stupid loan. It was for the biggest coal-fired power plant in the world um, under construction. It was chock full of corruption. Hitachi and uh, the ANC's Chancellor House have actually been busted on it. Uh, Hitachi paid a $20 million fine uh, to the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, And then for climate change, it shouldn't have, uh, loans shouldn't have been made because it should have been off coal. In fact, the World Bank doesn't do coal loans anymore. I think the World Bank owes some reparations for this and a variety of other things where they've made a big mistake. And we should really be seeing and and indeed listening to the activists who already are saying, hey, this loan, uh, cancel it. It's an odious debt. It shouldn't be paid. Yeah. Annabelle, let's touch a bit about, you know, uh, the finance minister, um, Minister Malusi Kikaba and what he stands for when it comes to WEF. What can we read into his, you know, uh, I don't know, perceptions or whether South Africans trust him as the finance minister and whether he can, you know, be on the level of power that seemingly Cyril Ramaphosa is viewed internationally when it comes to the country? Yes, 
I think that is a good and important point. But before we get into that, I think perhaps an area I would disagree with the professor on is that essentially if you have a look at what's happening to South Africa, you know, sure, there have been credit rating downgrades, but there are credit rating downgrades and credit rating downgrades. And, you know, what we've had so far is that we still have one investment grade downgrade and it's a full it's a full investment grade rating it's the you know the, the, the essentially the local and the hard currency rating from Moody's which is keeping us in the Citibank's world global bond index and you know losing that rating actually is an important point um, you know outflows of up to 200 billion could occur and if you actually have a look at the bond flows that come into South Africa you know they can they can average maybe around a billion a day or less and certainly 200 billion is a huge amount why is it important because certainly it's passive investment. You know, these funds cannot obviously hold South Africa debt if it falls into some investment grade, and they are forced to sell. So that will certainly have a major impact on the RAND. Having a look at the credit rating downgrades we've had already, as I said earlier, and saying, well, we've had these downgrades, it hasn't impacted the RAND, therefore it doesn't matter because liquidity is high and there's yield searching, doesn't really, you know, uh, compute to the risk we're facing at the moment. Certainly if we have a look at the major impact of losing that one final investment grade, you know, rating our local currency front, it will have an impact on the currency. And of course, you know, the, globally there's major risk on, which means that investors are obviously looking to hold riskier assets. That's certainly driven the RAND in terms of its strength to some degree. But also, of course, we've seen the political outcome of the ANC Electoral Conference also assisting it. What we've really looked at before has been countries like Turkey, Brazil, that have seen a substantial or significant or meaningful credit rating downgrade, where they've actually seen all the ratings drop from investment grade to sub-investment grade. And it's on that final event, when you finally lose your last investment grade rating from the three key agencies, that you do actually see major um, currency weakness. And of course, that's really, you know, been, um, you know, a research point that, you know, these 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 countries have actually seen not only higher interest rates and higher bond yields, they've also seen an impact on their currency, as we said, and of course on their economic growth. Now, you know, looking at South Africa and saying, will the world end when we're in proper junk status, and all our ratings are in junk status, well, the answer is no. You know, many countries in the world do have sub-investment grade ratings, and yet they still have money that flows in because there is interest. But what will change for us, we'll fall out the passive fund, which means not active investing, but passive investing, where the fund is mandated to only hold those bonds of those countries have an investment grade rating. And that's not something we can avoid. So our expectation is that if we do get this credit rating downgrade, you know, from Moody's that's being signaled for the end, you know, of, of the first quarter, then we will see a currency reaction. We will see a bond reaction and we'll certainly see some type of interest rate reaction. You've already seen that from the comments of the South African Reserve Bank. They specifically did not look at an interest rate cap because they are worried that we could still see this this final downgrade. Grade, but but Finance Minister Malusa Kikaba, how is he viewed in all of this? Well, I think Finance Minister Malusa Kikaba has initially been tarred with a Zuma camp brush, and certainly he has to build credibility. You know, one is obviously looking at the budget he put out last year when we're talking about this medium-term budget policy statement. There certainly was great concern from the credit rating agencies from Moody's, and that's when they put us on this credit review, because they said for a downgrade to sub-investment grade, they said that really, you know, the finances have become so bad, you know, to be putting it simply, that, you know, you can no longer expect to remain on an investment grade rating. Mm -hmm. And of course, now since then, we've 
we've obviously seen a lot of commentary come out. <clears throat> Even before December, Melissa Garber pulled back and said, actually, we're going to, you know, put these factors in place to try and reduce the um, strain on the finances, the budget deficit, the, the borrowing, all of these issues. So, you know, there has certainly been a rand reaction back then where it said, you know, that there will be a good outcome. And, of course, you know, that and Sorum opposed election did result in Moody saying both of those factors are now credit positive. When a rating agency says something is credit positive, normally it means you're going to get an upgrade, but in our case it means we might just manage to avoid this credit rating downgrade. So in terms of Melissa Garber, all eyes are going to be on him for the budget going yeah. forward. It does seem obviously as though Sorum opposed is having a lot more input mm. than before. You know, we, we, we are running out of time. I want to touch yeah. on U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, uh, Professor he is seen, you know, as not being a team player. Davi did say that. And you also said that he's going to delegitimize a lot of these agreements because he's not in agreement, really. What can we expect from his uh, contribution? Well, we had a, an opportunity last July to hear how Donald Trump relates to world leaders. That was the G20 meeting. And there was only one African at those meetings in Hamburg. There's one African member of the G20, South Africa. Jacob Zuma went and was, I must say, obsequious. He had nothing critical to say. Things changed a couple of weeks ago when Donald Trump uh, has reportedly and uh, with with some good verification said that uh, African countries are s-holes. I'm sure I can't Uh. say the actual word. And so his own delegitimization has advanced quite rapidly. He's considered a a joke but a dangerous lunatic with a finger on the nuclear button that could be used for North Korea. Yes, and I think the critical thing economically amongst these world elites uh, last year Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader said, I will take up the mantle that Barack Obama had left of pro-globalization, pro-trade. And Donald Trump still has the aura about him that people in Davos are very concerned about as being protectionist. It turns out he has renewed trade deals, except for the big one with Asia he is negotiating. And the key thing, especially with his tax cuts for big corporates from Mm. 35 to 21 percent, he's driving the world tax rates down. He's putting a kind of race to the bottom politics. And I think the big corporates there, they love it. And they love the amnesty that lets them take huge amounts of money from, uh, let's say, banks like Investec offshore (laughs) Mm. and tax havens and bring them back without much tax penalty. Again, the rich are getting, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. It's a schizophrenic situation, isn't it? And I think Donald Trump, if uh, at the same time in Addis Ababa, we're having the African Union meetings and they're beginning to find their voice and they're not being so obsequious. They know Nikki Haley, who's Trump's uh, ambassador in the UN, is threatening to cut off aid unless they vote along, say, on the the, uh, move of the Israeli Mm. embassy. We are unfortunately out of time. I'm sorry that I have to cut out both of you, but there's so much to chat about. I wonder if we shouldn't change it uh, from the World Economic Forum to the world's richest 1% economic Mm, forum. uh, And the world economic (laughs) fraud and climate change we haven't mentioned as well. Fraud. I mean, these are the, the, the disasters in the making from these very lads, yeah. mostly men, the seven women co-chairs in Davos. I hope people retain a healthy degree of skepticism. Well, thank you so much to you, Professor Patrick Bond. Thank you. Good thank to be with you. Thank you, Annabelle Bishop. Thank you very much. That's where we leave our chat. and we, So that's how we say goodbye on this 23rd of January here on African Dialogue. Tune in again tomorrow. We come to you from 1100 hours Central African time. You can also WhatsApp us our other contact details. Uh, that's on plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. If you're in South Africa, the number is 076-300-3327. And leave your comments there and uh, voice notes. And, of course, at Channel Africa is our handle on Twitter. Find us 
us on Facebook as well. So, as promised, we'll play you out now with the song or the work of uh, the late music legend Hugh Masekela titled uh, Ghana. From me, Asanda Matsawanyane and the team, goodbye for now. Hugging all around, they've been waiting.